Well, good morning to you. And if you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 124. Psalm 124 in your Bibles. There are some black Bibles on the half walls around this room. If you don't have one with you, I'd encourage you to get there. It's more important this Sunday than maybe normal Sundays or other Sundays because usually we have these two side screens working and the sermon outline goes up on those and then often scripture texts that are referred to go up on the screen behind me. We've got technical difficulties on the side screens today. Um, So I'd encourage you, get to Psalm 124 in your Bibles. This week I've been skim reading a book called What If, colon, Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions. For years, the author, Randall Monroe, has had a blog where he tries to give serious answers to those who write in with sort of weird, hypothetical, what-if kind of questions. The book is a collection of those things he's written in the past. And it scratches a peculiar itch for me. I'm not sure why. It's the grown-up version of that era for kids where they, they're asking what if a whole lot. There's that early era of why. Everything's why. Why, why that? Why, why? A few years later, it's, hey, Dad, what if? What if elephants had pouches like kangaroos? And you go, yeah, yeah, what if? Yeah. What if grizzly bears, Dad, were actually cuddly and they want to be friends, but we don't know it because they look scary? Yeah, what if? What if? As I said, the book is a little more grown up or at least scientific than the version of what if that our kids have asked us over the years. But after reading several chapters this week, it dawned on me that it's just pure entertainment. I don't think I learned anything because the stuff in it isn't about what is, but what if. Saying what if, that can be fun every now and then, but it's not always useful. What, what if questions can actually be bad for someone who has um, abnormal fears? More than once, I've counseled someone who gave way too much thought to what if something else had happened in the past, or what if this happens in the future? But Psalm 124 encourages us to ask what if. It encourages us to think about the hypothetical, not so that we escape the real world or are paralyzed by senseless fear, but so that the real world is contrasted and better understood and appreciated. And hence, we're more confident about the present and the future. See if you can pick that out as we read Psalm 124. A song of ascents of David If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth, We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
What a beautiful psalm, isn't it? You might remember from last week with Psalm 123, we had a psalm which lamented the scorn of the proud and pled with the Lord to do something about it. Well, Psalm 124 flows logically from that as if an answer to that request for help in 123 has now been answered. And so he ponders what might have been if the Lord hadn't been his help and praises God for so wonderfully being that help. The passage seems to move along with a series of conjunctions, some explicit and some implied. Do you remember conjunctions? This is the first week of school for some in this room, or at least some families in this room. Some parents in here are old enough to remember conjunction, junction, what's your function, picking up letters to, I forgot the rest of it, but in honor of getting back to school, I have four conjunctions to help us think through Psalm 124. If, then, but, so. I think it's the strangest outline I've ever come up with. The first, if. You see if twice there in the first couple of verses. Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Imagine if. This is corporate, isn't it? Let Israel now say. It seems as though there's a worship leader who starts things off and then calls the congregation to join in. There's a bit of happy cheerleading going on here. It's like a pep rally for God's people. He's not only trying to get them to start on time. This may have been one way in which they would sort of begin a song and start together. But when it says, let Israel now say, it's also a reflective thing. Repeat this after me. Let's think about this together. Let's ponder this. Let's rehearse this truth together, Israel. Let it be ruminating in your mind as it comes out of your lips. Let's try to really get what it means when it says, if the Lord had not been on our side. It's an odd exercise the psalm leads us through to ponder what if in a negative way. It's almost the opposite of counting your blessings so that what the Lord hadn't done and what the Lord protected you from and could have allowed you to go through sort of boomerangs in returns to praise. The psalm would have us ponder a world in which God isn't for us but is against us. A world where we're left to ourselves, where we have no help, and hence we have no hope. Just imagine that's what John Lennon told us to do. Imagine. He thought it would be a dream world if we could live like there was no heaven or hell. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, he sang. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Well, I imagine that, and I don't find it to be a dream world at all, but scary loneliness helplessness, hopelessness, nothingness. Someone who I was close to growing up at some point in his teen years made a profession of faith in Jesus, but then in his adult life he abandoned that and became a passionate atheist. We were recently together and catching up and he was sharing with me eventually that 
He's really been struggling with depression. I wanted to encourage him. I wanted to help him. I wanted to provide comfort for him. Though, because we haven't seen each other in a long time, I didn't think it appropriate to take this as a welcome mat to talk about the gospel. I didn't think he would take that as me caring for his soul, but instead taking advantage of his depression so that I could try to win a religious argument like we've had a couple times in the past. And so I, I didn't talk to him about the gospel. Hopefully another day we'll get there. But I wanted to give him some sort of encouragement and comfort, even if it's temporary, horizontal, human comfort. And I was really at a loss. What do you say? Getting inside his worldview with his assumptions, what do you say to provide comfort for depression? Sentences kept coming to mind, ones that I could never say out loud. And don't be depressed because you're simply a blob of atoms and amoebas. <laughs> don't be depressed because it's survival of the fittest out here. You've got to be fit. That's the name of the game. Don't be depressed because this is all you got. This life is all you got. You don't have another life to look forward to. This one is it. You've got to make the most of it, man. I thought about this Bertrand Russell quote. Only on the firm foundation of despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. I'm not sure what I said to him. But in that moment, I had a breathtaking, renewed realization about how different our worlds are. It's not that I don't get depressed. I do. It's not that Christians don't get depressed. We do. But it's amazing the number of tools we have to deal with depression or at least to fight it, to make sense of it, to work through it. We have explanations for depression. We've had experiences with depression and we've been sustained through dark seasons of depression and we know who's been holding us by the hand as we've gone through it, the Lord. The Bible tells us that Jesus upholds this world with his powerful word and in him all things hold together. He's the sustainer. So what if the Lord didn't sustain you? What if the Lord had not given you the number of heartbeats he has up until this point? What if your heart had stopped? What if your mind had ceased? What if synapses ceased to fire? It is not a given that this body's central nervous system continues to operate at a normal level. It's not going because I'm good at it or I concentrate on it. What if every possible threat in this world? What if there was nothing to prevent it? Nothing to hold it back. Nothing to mitigate against it. Nothing to keep you from it besides whatever skills or strategies you might have. What if there was no ultimate and final justice to which we could look for the writings of wrongs in this world? What if we had to scratch and claw to try to get as much possible justice out of these heinous wrongs that are in this world? Can you imagine living in a world where there wasn't a God who said, leave it to me, justice is mine, I will repay? It would mean that Hitler only suffered a painless bullet to the head for his countless murders. We want justice, rightly so, but we also want mercy. 
None of us want fierce justice, do we? We know we've done wrong, and so we need mercy. But how do you get mercy apart from God? And how do you receive mercy or make sense of mercy or have a basis for mercy apart from God? If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, we're so glad you're here with us. Occasionally, I'll talk directly to you. For instance, you should know that verse 1 here, when it says, if the Lord had not been on our side, it's not a given that we're on the Lord's side. It's not automatic or, or even naturally the case. In fact, quite the opposite. We were born into this world going astray from God, or even, to put it another way, going against God. We were born into a movement of cosmic rebellion following our parents, and before that, Satan himself. King David, who in his adult life was called a man after God's own heart, wasn't born that way. So he could say in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean that she had him out of wedlock or something like that. It means he was born into sin because he was born from sinners, just like their parents before. So we're not born with the Lord on our side, but in fact against us because we've opposed him and resisted him. Now later on in this message, we'll talk about how the Lord comes to be on our side. For now, let's just keep this exercise going of imagining what it's like when he's not with us. That's if. Then. Number two, then. If was verse one and verse two. Verse three, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. David likens his enemies their anger and their agenda against him like that of a, a threat of a, a massive sea creature. Think of that giant fish that swallowed Jonah whole. Of course, Jonah, by God's grace, escaped. But that's not the norm. Usually if a whale swallows a man whole and you find yourself in the belly of a whale, you're not going to get out. And so David sees the threat as that urgent and that problematic, like a giant hungry sea creature lurking below, coming up unexpectedly and suddenly. You don't see it coming, and then instantly you're in his mouth and it's curtains. So that's one metaphor, a massive sea creature. Then there's another metaphor, verse four and five, a flood. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Do you see progression there? The flood, the torrent, the raging waters. The flood would have swept us away, but the torrent would have gone over us, as would the raging waters. Without the Lord, this is life. This is every trial without the Lord. It's that bad. Not literal waters, but people in Louisiana today can attest to the problem of rising waters. But this is a, a metaphor for any kind of threat and trouble. Trouble in general is unexpected, unseen, 
powerful, destructive, deadly. And without the Lord, it seems utterly chaotic and and unpredictable. Think of Israel's rich history with trouble and rescue. Think of the stories of the Old Testament as what otherwise might have been than the story you know. What if the Lord had never spoken any promises to Abraham? Just take that part out of your Bible. What goes with it? What if the Lord did not open the wombs of Sarah and Rebekah and Rachel and there were no sons of Abraham? What if the famine at the end of Genesis wiped out Jacob and all his sons and grandsons? What if the brothers had never sold Joseph into slavery and hence Joseph would never rise to prominence in Egypt and would never have been able to put food aside for the famine that's coming and hence able to feed his brothers and father when they were in desperate trouble? What if? What if the Lord had never freed his people from Egypt in the book of Exodus? Or what if he freed them and then he got them all the way to the Red Sea, but then they're trapped and the Egyptian army just wipes them out one by one? What if God never parted the Red Sea? Let's go back and look at that story. Would you turn with me in, in your Bible to Exodus 14? Look at this, Exodus 14. Remember our psalm was talking about flood and torrent and raging waters and enemies. We should likely think of the parting of the Red Sea. Here at this point in the plan, they're free from Egypt, but the Egyptian army is hot on their tail. And God has been leading his people to this very spot, the banks of the Red Sea. It's not a place you go if you're thinking strategically about safety, at least humanly so. Even worse, God had positioned them in sort of a boxed-in way, according to verse 3. God predicted that Pharaoh would say, oh, they're wandering all over. They're stupid. The wilderness has shut them in. They're trapped. They're ours. Here are these vagabond Israelites with no weapons, nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, nothing to fight with, are facing the mighty Egyptian army and all of the army all the chariots, all the horsemen, all the foot soldiers who are marching toward. And then in verse 10 of Exodus 14, we read the people feared greatly, but they also cried out to the Lord. Now let's pick up reading in verse 16. Lift up your staff, God says to Moses, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved in and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them. That's where it was before when it would lead them. But now it stood behind them to protect them and block them. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was cloud and darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Skip to verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. If the Lord had not been on their side, the Egyptians would have swallowed them up alive. The flood would have swept them away. A torrent would have gone over them like raging waters. What if they'd made it through the Red Sea only to starve to death on the wilderness on the other side? What if there was no Joshua to lead them into the land? What if Joshua and his men marched around Jericho seven times, then blew their horns, but it only alerted the Jericho army that they're outside, and so they went out there and they killed them? What if the spies went into the land and Rahab said, Get out of my house! Now, if you're not familiar with some of these stories... No worries. They're just all rescue stories. And like all rescue stories, they have a key ingredient where if you pull it out, or key ingredients, really, where you pull them out or one of them out and the whole thing crumbles. It's not successful. There's no rescue. What if Gideon's 300 men had not just been enough? What if David was as cowardly as King Saul and his brothers and the rest of the Israelite army that fateful day when Goliath was once again taunting the army to fight him? What if David's sling was slightly off that day? What if he had hit the giant square in the forehead and it hurt him, but now he was really mad? What if? Isn't it fun playing the what-if game? Remember, this is a psalm of David, of David. We don't know when he wrote it, on which occasion it was commemorating. There were so many possibilities. It could be defeat of the Philistines in 2 Samuel 5, anything we've mentioned so far. It could be the time when he finally had some victory over his rebellious son in the civil war that broke out against him. Basically, this is any day in the life of David, any conflict or trouble or battle. In Psalm 34, he can say, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But in Psalm 124, he says, well, imagine if he didn't. Imagine. You could fast forward 
a few hundred years. In fact, I'd encourage you to read Isaiah 37 this afternoon. It's the story of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and the rescue God gave for him and his people when the Assyrian army had them in their sights. This Assyrian army was ravenous in its conquering and destroying of nations. And now they set their sights on Judah. And we read that Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And the Lord protected Judah that day because the angel of the Lord went out that night and killed 185,000 Assyrians and hence the rest fled away. If the Lord had not been on their side, then they'd be destroyed. If, then, but... Verses 6 and 7 sort of make a turn here. But, but praise God because he has been on our side and has been our help. Blessed be the Lord. He has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken. We have escaped. Now, blessed be might sound a little decaffeinated to you, a little weak. Blessed be. Maybe you might think of God being blessed like he has a halo and, and he likes something he sees and so he barely smiles. That's not what it means. It means praise be to God. Blessed be God means to bless him, to praise him. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless him. It's vigorous. It's energetic, it's thoughtful, it's passionate. And that's what we see in so many of these rescue stories that we were just reviewing. Exodus 14, the parting of the Red Sea. Exodus 15 is a giant song of praise to God for what he's done. The Philistines were finally defeated and David wrote a rather long psalm about it. Praise is the natural response for those who recognize the danger and see God as the deliverer. It should be the natural response. Praise should be the natural response for those who rightly recognize the extent of the danger and know that it was God who delivered. So praise him. Praise him for what he's done. Praise him for what he's done for you and praise him for what he's done for his people in ages past. Praise him for what could have been, but thankfully wasn't. Ponder the worst and praise him that it wasn't. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We might rightly think of Daniel in the lion's den where God shut the mouths of lions. But any trial, really, could tear us apart. Uh, the threat usually is not a wild animal with big teeth. Any trial can produce this downward spiral that destroys lives. We've seen it, haven't we? Any sin can create this vortex that takes us away from the Lord or proves that we were really never with him, we just said we were. What sins has God kept you from? It's amazing to ponder how many you might have sinned 
if only he had let you. I think the number might be close to infinity. How many sins has he kept you from? Do you have some Joseph and Potiphar's wife stories in your own experience where, to, where temptation was so strong and enticing and the consequences would have been so enormous and somehow God gave grace for you to simply flee? Well, if that happened, then it wasn't you, really. It was him. It's him keeping you from it. It's not within us, by ourselves anyway, to flee all sins. So praise him for it. Praise him for those severe temptations that you barely got out of. Verse 7, we've escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare's broken. We have escaped. In Bible times, of course, there were no guns. And so you hunted birds with nets. If you hunted a bird, you were a fowler. So picture it. You're a bird, let's say. A trap has been set by a fowler. And before you know it's there, boom, a net is on you. That's it, you're done. That fowler is thinking, dinner time. This bird is as good as dinner. I got him, he's in the net. But God breaks the net. And the bird goes free. You're the bird. You have escaped. It was that close. It was as good as done. And God made a way. God kept you. But remember to ponder, what if he, what if he didn't? What if the doctor's test came back positive? What if the cancer was inoperable. What if the Lord had not provided for you like he has, which again is not a given when so many, even in this country, still miss food. They lack food. What if? What, what if your son or daughter didn't pull through that weird sickness they got? And I know some in this room have had that happen. And I can't imagine what that's like. Mourn that loss. Bring your pain to God. Tell him about it. Ask him for comfort. Ask him to use it. But can I also add this? Let that loss in that pain also speak to what hasn't been lost in your life and what hasn't been sheer pain. It's amazing how much isn't pain. It's amazing how merciful and good he's been. The Puritan John Owen had 11 children, 10 of which died in infancy or toddler years. The one that did survive into adulthood, married a bad man, had to leave him and come home, and two years later in her 30s, she died. Oh, how much we take for granted. And oh, how little we often make of our survival of trials once we're out of them. I got this from Martin Luther this week. Boy, what an insight this is. He says, when we're in danger, our fear is without measure. It's to the ceiling. 
But once the danger is past, we imagine it to have been less than it was. This is the delusion of Satan to diminish and obscure the grace of God. We are taught in this psalm how to think of our past troubles and affliction, lest the sense and feeling of God's grace vanish from our minds. Sometimes we think the trial in the rearview mirror wasn't so bad, but then we minimize God's grace for getting through it. And sometimes we get through a trial and, and we struggle to deal with how severe it was. We struggle to make sense of why it was so difficult. I talk to a lot of people, Christians too, who really genuinely and continually struggle with why bad things happen to good people. They want an explanation for the trial. They really expect that after the trial there will be some kind of revelation from God about why it was needed and why it was good. If you've gone through something hard, however hard though, and you've come out the other side, he sustains you. Can I give you this one little thing to hang any trial upon? So you can certainly think of more. The Bible offers more reason and hope and promise and encouragement for our trials than this. But here's one thing you can always hang your hat on, Christian, with every trial. If you come out of it, or maybe you're still in it, but you're still believing, God got you through it. God sustained you in it. God is getting you through it. He is sustaining you in it. It may not feel like he's getting you through it or that he got you through it. But if you're still believing and you're trusting in Jesus, then he gave enough grace for you to get through it. He sustained you. It's victory. And there really doesn't have to be more reason for the trial than that. It doesn't have to be that you feel holier immediately after the trial ceased. It doesn't have to be that you're necessarily closer with the Lord than you were before. Usually that's the case, and there are Bible verses for that, for that reality. But it can sometimes be enough. I, I got through it. I escaped. I survived. And he's still my God. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Say with King David, we've escaped. It's exuberant, isn't it? We've escaped. That's the kind of joyful thanks and praise that flows out of the heart that dares to ponder some what-ifs he had not. Maybe this morning, though, you're tempted to imagine a different set of what-ifs. Maybe as we're talking about this, what-ifs keep coming to mind, but of a totally different kind. Yeah, what if he had kept me from that impossible marriage? That'd have been better. What if he'd allowed me to go to college like so-and-so did? Or to have the career path that he did? Or just to, to get the rewards of the work I've done like that one has? What if? What if the Lord had blessed the teaching we gave our kids like that family got, why did our kids go astray? What if he had given us godly kids? If that's where your mind goes this morning, can I lovingly challenge that? You probably aren't giving serious enough attention or frequent enough attention to the fact 
that you and I deserve much, much worse. It is not a given to have godly kids. It is not a given to be pain-free. It is not a given to go to college or have a middle-class life. There is a kind of what-if that protests against God, but there is a better kind of what-if that leads to praise to God. And Psalm 124 is trying to show you the beauty and joy of what-if which ponders negative possibilities against the bright backdrop of what is that it might lead you to praise. Now back to this matter of who has the Lord on their side and how you get it. I said we don't deserve the Lord's help or favor. We're not born with him on our side. And in fact, it is not easy to get him on your side. It's not like filling out a check or some paperwork. It was hard. The cross shows us how hard it was for God to reconcile us to, our, to himself. The cross is what shows us how he fought to be on our side and to get us on his side. Jesus, his coming, his suffering, his poverty, his persecution and his crucifixion and resurrection. Can't you think of Jesus through the lens of Psalm 124? This was a song he would have sung and could have uniquely sung in first person. Think of how Jesus faced such great threats in his life and ministry. It would seem as though he was always about to be swallowed up. Anger was constantly kindled against him. It would look like the raging waters were about to go over him. And yet he was protected through it all. Though they would plot to kill him, nothing would come of it. They would try to grab him, and he would slip through their midst. As I said a couple of weeks ago, God protected the Son of God up to the cross. From Egypt, where Jesus fled with his parents because, because Herod was going to kill him all the way up to the cross, and even in and through the cross, God was protecting him. I said a couple of weeks ago, the fact that they didn't break any of his bones shows a, a prophetic fulfillment of God's protection even within the cross itself. It's, it's unthinkable. And the resurrection was proof that God delivered him, rescued him, kept him, vindicated him, David could say, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. But the New Testament picks that up and says what David was doing was speaking of himself, but also pointing ahead to the resurrection. God was saying through David, I will not let my Holy One receive corruption. God raised him up. And he died and was raised up for our deliverance. Not just for his vindication, but for our deliverance. So Colossians tells us that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And 1 Thessalonians says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. There is wrath. There is judgment. Righteous, holy, hot judgment from God upon this rebellious world. But Jesus delivers us from it. 
Romans 11 just quotes from the Old Testament and, and says, the deliverer will come from Zion. And that's him. He's the deliverer. Is he your deliverer today? Have you fled to him? Do you have deliverance from guilt? If not, this is by far your greatest trouble, your biggest pickle, your, your, your hugest dilemma. It's not that fight with, with aunt so-and-so or, or Egyptians for the Old Testament or Assyrians or, or the next president. Your biggest problem is with God. Until you recognize that, there's no deliverance. John chapter 3 tells us that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world. The world's actually already condemned because of sin. He came into this world that we might believe and be saved. But for those who don't believe, they're already under condemnation. If you don't have Jesus as your deliverance, then your occasional prayers to God for help are useless. It's black and white. He's on your side or he's not. He's not on your side because you're good most of the time. He's on your side only because Jesus came to be on your side. Don't think that God will, will be your occasional personal assistant or give self-improvement, or be your problem solver if you don't think that you need a savior. You don't need a helper. You don't need to leg up every now and then. You need a savior. I pray you'd call out to him today. Christian, if you have called out to him, if you know the Lord is on your side, then with guts, you can ponder the what if. What if not? What if Jesus didn't come to die for sin? What if there was no cross? What if he didn't rise from the dead but was still in the tomb? What if? What if the Lord hadn't saved you? What if you had grown up in a gospel-less land where the gospel was not accessible and no one told you about it? What if you never heard? What if he never opened your ears to hear and your eyes to see? What if he never gave faith? Because some people, they hear the gospel and it's like Charlie Brown's teacher. It's nothing. It's, it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. They don't see any reason for it. And if you've come to believe it, well, that's not you. That's not your doing. What if he hadn't? What if he hadn't come? Well, then you'd, You'd be in your sins and you'd be doomed to eternal punishment. The Lord would not only not be on your side, but he would be against you. And all the descriptions of hell in the Bible wouldn't be words on a page to read, but actual experiences in your life and soul forever and ever. But... But, praise God, he did come. He did die, Christian. He did rise from the dead. He did give you faith and brought the gospel to you. You've come to believe, and now he saved you. He did. He hasn't given us as prey to the teeth of the adversary. The net of judgment was upon us. 
but he made a way of escape. The waters of God's wrath rightly raged against our sins and were coming down upon us apart from the cross and apart from you coming to believe that the cross means your salvation. And now the Lord's on your side. If, then, but, so, that's verse 8. So, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. In honor of school starting this week, let me give you another language lesson from this psalm. Notice that verses 1 through 7 are all in past tense. They would have. He has. He did. But then verse 8 switches and it's present tense. This small detail, I think, actually gives us the key to the whole psalm. So here's the flow. If the Lord hadn't been on our side, then we'd have been toast, eaten, swept away, trapped. But he was on our side, past tense. He has not given us their teeth. He has freed us from the net. So our help is today in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And if it's present tense now, then it will be forever. It's future as well. Listen to the end of Romans 8 with this thing of tense in mind. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not, past tense, spare his own son but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, past tense, and was raised. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, sword? No. In all these, we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us, past tense. And I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, or powers, or depth, or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, how beautiful. English tenses can be. We have so much kindling for the furnace of faith if we'll use it. Use the Old Testament. Look back upon its stories as our stories. Not someone else's. This is our past tense too. We've been grafted into the story. And so these songs are our songs and these stories are our Stories, because this is our God. The same God who parted the Red Sea is the one you pray to. We pray to the God of the cross. We pray to the God of the New Testament, the virgin birth. We pray and seek the help of the God who let apostles suffer like he did, but protected them and, and made the gospel flourish through them. Be encouraged. We can reflect on our own lives in much the same way. The stuff that's known and the stuff that's unknown. The stuff that's seen and the stuff that's unseen. The stuff that's real and what might have been but wasn't. 
through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. We have a great experience in our lives to lean upon, no matter our age. And we can encourage each other with our day-to-day stories of how God is sustaining us, flourishing us, or if we're just hanging by, just getting by in the midst of our trials. To God be the glory. When one's done, we can say, I escaped. He cut a hole in the net this week. I got out. Still hurts. But I'm out. We can praise God together. Not only for our own experiences with grace, but for each other's. It's like there's a a crescendo that builds. The more we think about what God has done in the past, what he's doing in the present, what he's doing with you, what he's doing with me, all this just keeps growing so that we say, blessed be, blessed be him. Oh, let Desert Springs Church now say, if the Lord had not been on our side, we'd have been doomed. But praise him, he was on our side. He has been good. He's been our help. He's the maker of heaven and earth. We've escaped. There's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's my story. That's what we keep telling each other. This is church. All this stuff we're talking about, it's, it's what the church does. It's what it's for. It's not a gathering of remotely re- religiously interested people who want to be entertained and mildly inspired. We gather together simply each week to tie into the living God and his grand plan, to remember, to remind each other, Keep recounting what he's done in history and in our lives today so that we feel our need for him afresh, so that we ponder life without him and we give him praise for it all. We celebrate. We've escaped. Our God has been our help in ages past and he's our hope for years to come. He's a shelter from the stormy blast in our eternal home. Reminding ourselves of these truths and walking with each other in these experiences is what the people of God have done for thousands of years. That's why we're here today. Let's pray for his help. Blessed be you, our Lord, maker of heaven and earth. We thank you for your protection. Help us to marvel at the infinitely unknown possibilities or even the close calls that we have no idea about, but we know are there. Cars that barely missed us, stupid things we did as kids. On and on the list goes. We have the rest of our lives in all eternity to keep recounting them, marveling at them, the known and the unknown, praising you for what you've done, the known and the unknown, celebrating what you've done, and standing upon the hope that our our help is in you, is. 
and forever will be. Help us to know that, sing that, and rejoice in it with great confidence today. Amen.